This is KMTT. Tuesday, Parshat HaShavua, will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. This week with Parshat Vayigash, uh, we come to the close of the Yosef story. And uh, I'm actually not going to focus on the tension this week between Yosef and his brothers. Rather, I would like to talk about uh, Yosef's economics policy, as it appears in Perak Mem Zion of this week's parasha. Uh, Yosef leads the country of Egypt during the years of famine. It's, it's a time of national crisis. And we have to ask ourselves, what Yosef did, um, how does he form his policies during these troubled and pressurized circumstances? What spirit motivates Yosef as he leads Egypt through these difficult times? Many people reading the end of the parasha will feel that there is a certain sense of lack of sensitivity of Yosef exploiting the situation in order to manipulate the population of Egypt and to bring them into a state of absolute poverty. Um, when we read the, the description here, it would seem that people are starving, resources are scarce, and that Yosef is interested in manipulating this national emergency to gain absolute control over the country for Pharaoh. Let's take a look. It says here, and here I am reading Pasuk Yud Dalad, Perak Mem Zayin, Pasuk Yud Dalad, Vayelakit Yosef et kol hakesem animsa b'aretz Mitzrayim uveretz kanan basheva ashehim shomim. Yosef managed to gather all of the money, the silver of Egypt, through the uh, grain that they were buying, and Yosef brought all of the money to Pharaoh. And how did he do this? All the people in the first year, they come to gain grain until the money is gone. In the second year, Yosef says, you know, you don't have money, but bring your uh, livestock, bring your sheep, bring your cattle, and if uh, and I will give you grain, and this is exactly what they do. They trade their horses, their sheep, their cattle, their donkeys, and uh, therefore during the second year they have food. At the end of the third year, they say, "Look, we've got no money. We've got no animals. What should we do? All we have is." Um, we have nothing other than our bodies, our cells, and our land. And they say, why should we die? So buy us and our lands. And indeed, this is what he does. He buys their lands, and uh, he then basically owns the entire Egypt. And in verse 21, Pasuk Chaf Aleph, Yosef engages in quite a drastic measure where it says, Yosef engages in population transfer, moving people from one border of Egypt to the other, the only people staying in place. He only, the only land he didn't buy was the land of the Kohanim, of the Egyptian priests. And uh, this is how he gains absolute control over the country. Now, there are a few questions arise when we read these psukim. I guess the first question is, why does the Torah need to give us all of the information 
about how Yosef managed the famine situation. We don't uh, need to know all the details of uh, the economic plan and the way that Yosef gained absolute control of uh, Egypt, get delivering everything into the hands of Pharaoh. We don't need to know about the taxation policy in Egypt, where 20% of everything, um, as it says here, goes to uh, Pharaoh. You give 20% taxation to Pharaoh. So, why do we need to see all these all these details? But the second question is whether Yosef is acting with a, a rather heavy hand here. And that might be quite surprising, seeing that Yosef himself has experienced slavery. And uh, when Yosef says in Pasuk Chav Gimel, Yosef ela'am, hein kaniti ayom, I have purchased you today, bet atmatchem and your lands, um, is Joseph a person who isn't sensitive to the question of buying people? Why would Joseph take this uh, stark and extreme measure if he himself has experienced slavery and the, the awful humiliation that comes along with it? So we have to begin to understand this parsha and what it means. And I'd like to, in today's shir, present two different approaches to this role, uh, to this parsha. Uh, so let's begin with the first. The first approach aims to see that Yosef actually didn't act in a sense of uh, taking advantage or exploiting the country, but rather he actually saved the country. He wasn't some sort of despotic uh, opportunist uh, taking advantage of the misery of the situation in order to hand everything over to Pharaoh. He saved the country, he created a plan that enabled the country to survived the years of famine and turbulence, and I'd say more than that, he did this with a maximization of human dignity. Let me try and elaborate how this how this might be able to be read. Uh, we will start earlier on in Perak Mem Aleph, where Yosef comes up with a plan for the seven years of, of uh, plenty and then the seven years of famine. And there we read, I'm reading here from Perak Mem Aleph, Pasuk Mem Vav, Mem Vav, Mem Zayin, Vatas Haaretz B'Sheva Shnei HaSava L'Kmatsim. It's not clear what this word Kmatsim is. Kometz usually means, Kmatsim, um, Kometz usually means a small amount. Maybe it means that during those seven years of plenty, he had everybody on rations, and he had everybody eating a very limited amount, so that, Pasuk Mem Chet, he could gather all the food together. And then it gives us an interesting detail. He put the food in the cities, and each city, he put the food uh, of that locale, of that region, he put within that city. Why? Why does he need to do this? Why does he need to collect each... I mean, the, the Midrash here says he puts, and again, using the model of Eretz Yisrael, he puts the stores of Tiveria in Tiveria, the stores of Tsipori in Tsipori. Of course, that is an Eretz Yisrael example of this, but uh, one imagines he did the same thing in the Egyptian cities. What is he doing? And here, the Abarbanel says something uh, phenomenal. He says that, first of all, the produce of the city is stored in that city and nowhere else because 
um, that is where you can store all the local produce. But it, it's more than that. Um, the aim here is that he would that each group would realize that they were working for the country. And later on, when the famine uh, hit and there really wasn't enough for anything, Yosef was able to lay open all of the storehouses. Um, if you look here in Pasuk Nun Vav, Avayal Kol Pnei Kol Haaretz, Vayifdach Yosef et Kol Asher Bahem, Vayishbor LeMitzrayim, Vayichazak HaRa'av Be'aretz Mitzrayim. In other words, Joseph opens up the storehouses. What is he doing? He obviously can't be opening it up so that everybody can grab the stores and deplete all of the uh, huge um, amount of grain that they have saved. So what, what does it mean when he is opening up the storehouses? Says the Abar Banel, and this is also amplified by the Or HaChaim, that he allowed people to realize that they were safe. He allowed people to realize that everything they'd worked for and all the taxation that they had taken over these years when they'd been living on rations was there, it was stored for them, and that they would be able to survive the famine however long it would, it would uh, manage to continue. And this sense of psychological security that no one's going to die, that there is enough grain for everybody in the community, that if only people can stay calm and can listen to the rules, and only they can uh, listen to the authorities, they will eventually be provided for, um, gave a huge sense of order and a feeling within Egypt that they were safe, and that this famine, which was bringing other nations to their knees and having people flocking to Egypt, uh, would actually not touch them and not impoverish them. However, here we now encounter an interesting problem. Later on, as the famine causes real hardship, we see that Yosef seems to bring the entire population to a state where they are penniless and he seems to enslave them all. Why, if Yosef has all of this grain, doesn't he simply hand it out? Why doesn't he help the poor and starving? Why does he bring them to this level of, why does he monopolize the nation so severely? And here I would like to turn our attention to the comments of the Ramban, who has a very tight reading here of the Pesukim. In Perak Memzai in Pasuk Yutet, the people turn to Yosef and they say, Why should we die? Kne otanu vetadmatenu. By us and by our lands. We in our lands should be slaves to Paro. However, in the next Pasuk, Pasuk Chaf, it says, Yosef et Yosef purchases all the lands of Mitzrayim to Pharaoh. And the Ramban with his keen eye notes that it doesn't say that Yosef purchased them. There would seem to be a point where Yosef does not want to buy the people themselves. And we can only ask ourselves why. Now, admittedly, the Ramban has to deal with a little problem where it says in Pasuk Chaf Gimel, I have bought you and your lands. Take this seed and go work the land. So how are we to understand this exactly? The, the Ramban understands this is part of an economic plan of Yosef. He says, Who who Loratza rakli knotet adama? He only wanted to purchase their lands. And the condition was that they would work the land, 
forever. And they should be perpetual leaseholders or maybe tenants to Pharaoh. And not to be slaves as you suggested, but only the land, the only, only the land would be, would be part of the, uh, owned by the government. What, what is, what is going on here? First of all, I would say that I think that Yosef seems unprepared to take any person's freedom from him. A person's freedom is the basis of his dignity. There's a lovely comment by the Meshachachma here, where he says, Yosef sanama odet kinyan ha'avdut, Yosef hated the notion that one person could buy another one, another person to his detriment to take advantage of him. He didn't like the notion of people exploiting another person and buying them. And says the message Chachma, that is why he would not buy the people. But what is Yosef doing here? So I think it's quite simple. The socio-political situation of a famine is, is very fragile. It's, it's potentially explosive. Famine presents fertile ground for social unrest, for personal collapse, communal disintegration, and even revolution against the government. People are out of work. They're bored. They sit around. They're hungry. They're complaining. Their needy families are around them demanding and crying and complaining and hungry, and everyone is frustrated. And there's an atmosphere of, of depression, and that depression leads to despondence and frustration and then anger, and who is one going to blame? There's a real danger of unrest, of chaos, of a breakdown of law and order, of people blaming other ethnic groups, of people blaming the government. So what is what are we going to do in this situation where we've got seven years with a nation out of work? And so Yosef puts his shrewd political brain into gear and uses deep psychological insights to, to to figure out what to do. He could have given out all of the grain, but that would have left the people in a situation where they are just takers and they are not active. But he did something different, which is very wise. He made the people first of all realize there is grain in the country. There will always be grain, but you have to pay for it. You have your dignity. You have to pay first your money then your livestock, and then your land. And when he's bought the land, what he essentially does is, he has a very interesting profit-sharing agreement, where, and this is where the Ramban says, when Yosef says to them, I've acquired you and your land for Pharaoh, he means not that he has acquired them as slaves, but through their farmland they'll serve him. The Ramban says that really, in, in this sort of arrangement, the king should take 80% and leave the the farmer with only 20%, but Yosef says, I'm going to be kind to you. You can work your land and you will actually be able to gain 80% of the, of the produce and only 20% will go to Pharaoh. With this very low level of taxation, only 20%, probably less than any of us pay in taxes, the people are being given an incentive to work. And I'd say more than that, when he says to them, um, He's actually instructing them to get to work. Probably there is a quota that they have to give Pharaoh. They have to go to work. They have to be occupied. When he moves them around the country, it could be, like the Rashbam says, that this is akin to what Sancherev does later on in history, 
destabilizing the local political leadership, destabilizing the population to make sure that this population won't rise up in unrest and therefore breaking local cells, breaking local leadership. But it could be something different. He's simply making them realize that they have to work. He's taking them to different aspects, the different areas of the country, where as a collective, as a group, Rav Hirsch suggests that whole towns or whole regions were kept together, but they were moved around the country in order they should realize that they actually have to work. What I'm suggesting is that it could be that what Yosef is doing here is ensuring a certain level of national morale, ensuring a level of some sense of occupation of the nation. Um, he, Yosef won't let the people become slaves. The people request slavery, but a slave has no worries. He throws all his needs and his responsibility onto his master. A slave has no vision. He has no future. What Yosef does is to hand the responsibility over to the people. And he helps them, and he helps the country to, to find its feet by retaining everybody's dignity. No one is slaves. By spurring people into a work plan whereby even in years where the produce is going to be incredibly meager, he will ensure that everybody has food to eat, but yet that everybody will still be at work. And this um, ensures that Egypt won't fall into collapse, that the country will not revolt against Pharaoh, and that there will be some sort of future for the country. According to this approach, Yosef is giving us an essential learn, uh, lesson in economics. Economics is not about the country squeezing the citizen dry, but rather about the government serving the nation by helping them through difficult times and making sure that everybody can get through the crisis together um, and emerge the other side with, well, surviving, and that the government can be in control and achieve in the long term prosperity for all. So that is the first approach, and you see, as, I've, as we've quoted, the Abar Banel, the Ramban, Rav Hirsch, it is shared by many, many different Mepharshim. However, I would like to uh, suggest a second approach of how to understand this very detailed chapter of economics and put it in a slightly different light. So we'll put our first approach aside, and we're going to go into a different uh, perspective. If you look at Peret Memzayim, and you look at this description and this depiction of the economics, is actually flanked on either side by stories of Bnei Yaakov. Chapter 46, Peret Memvav, describes the descent of the 70 descendants of Yaakov to Egypt. And as we see them then have to get royal permission to settle down in Egypt. And there is quite a jarring juxtaposition of Pesukim here around uh, Shvi'i, where, um, actually I'll give you the precise reference, Parat Men Zion, Pasukud Bet and Yud Gimel. And so maybe this will help us understand. At the end of that whole passage where Yosef brings his family down and he gets royal permission for them to stay in Goshen, he presents five of his brothers to Pharaoh. It says the following, Vayoshev Yosef et Aviv et Yosef and his father and his brothers are settled he settles them down in Goshen. He gives them a land holding in Egypt, in the best land. Yosef supports his father and his brothers. Bread 
according to the youngest one, although even the youngest had bread, and um, the Mepharshim here talk about maybe a very luxurious type of bread that can even be digested by, uh, by, by the young. But then the very next verse is, But there is no bread in the whole of Egypt. We gain this jarring juxtaposition where Yosef and his family, or Yosef places his family in the lap of luxury, but and they have plenty of bread, but the whole rest of the country has no food. And then we see the whole description of the nation being brought by Yosef to the point of slavery where he buys their flocks and he takes all their money and everything else. And immediately after this line, immediately after this, these psukim, all the way to Pasuk Chavav, Pasuk Chazayin is, Vayeshev Yisrael Be'eretz Mitzrayim Be'eretz Goshen Vayeachzuba Vayifru Vayirbu Ma'od And these words, Vayeshev Vayachzu, flank the story on either side. There it was, Achuzah Be'eretz Yisrael Here Vayachzuba Here Vayoshev Yosef Yitzaviv Now, they're not being put into place by by Yosef, but they are living there independently, and they are exceptionally uh, successful, and they are expanding. What is going on here? What is the juxtaposition between the security and the growth of Yosef's family, and this story about the economic plight of Egypt? And when we look at this, I think there are certain other phrases which jump out at us and that we can think about. Let me maybe relate to one Rashi. If you look at Rashi on Pasuk Chaf Aleph, Rashi says something remarkable. As Yosef is making everybody move around the country and he is moving people from one place to another, um, he, put, he moves them around from city to city, it says, Rashi says, this tells you the praise of Yosef, that he wanted to remove the mark of shame upon his brothers, that they should not be called wanderers or strangers. What seems to be at the backdrop to all of this, uh, by the way, this is Rashi quoting from Masechet Chulin, it's a very short line there in, in Masechet Chulin, but what Rashi is drawing our attention to is that actually something strange is going on. Yosef's brothers who came as strangers, as wanderers, are actually settling down. And that the people of Egypt who seem to be the normal population, the long-time residents, the, the core population of Egypt, are actually losing their possessions they're losing their security and they're losing their land. They are moving from being residents to being gerim, to being wanderers, to being movable objects. I think this is underscored by the use of a very interesting word, uh, or two words, the word ger and the word toshav, which are used throughout Sefer Breshit in different contexts. Maybe some of you remember the Rashi at the beginning of Vayeshev, Vayeshev Yaakov, the Eretz Mugurei Aviv. Um, where Rashi accuses Yaakov of wanting to settle down, to stop being a ger and wanting to be a toshav, to stop being in a state of constant transience and movement, but wanting to actually settle down and, and be in a state of, of 
static sitting. It's interesting that when the brothers come down to Egypt and they are presented to uh, to to Pharaoh, uh, Yosef brings his his brothers to Pharaoh and they say, "Vayomer Pharaoh, lagor ba'aretz banu." We've come here to sojourn. We're not we're not coming to live here. We're coming here lagor to be gerim, to be foreigners. And when the famine is over, I guess we will leave. It is admittedly they say, Will you allow us somewhere to sit? Will you allow us somewhere to be? So Paro turns around to them and says, They don't need to be gerim. They don't need to be impermanent. They don't need to be foreign citizens. They can be citizens. Again, when when Yaakov is presented to your to your, to Pharaoh, what does what does Yaakov say to your to, to Pharaoh? Vayom Yaakov al Pharaoh, you may shnei the days of my wanderings, the days of my sojournings. I've never lived anywhere, I've never settled anywhere. I've been in Eretz Israel, then in Padal Aram, and back in Eretz Israel, and I've always been moving. I've always been in a state where I don't feel at home. I've always been a ger. He says, All the avot were just girim. However, here, Yosef places his family. He gives them an They are settled. And indeed, it says they grip the land. Take a look at Rav Hirsch's comments on the last verse of the parsha. They live Vayeshev in Goshen and they grip the grip the land Od. I'd like to claim that this chapter maybe sets us up for the looming Galut and the looming um Avdut that is being predicted already from the Britpin Hamtarim for the Jewish people. Already back in the times of Abraham we were told we will be strangers in a land which is not ours. That we're going to have a state of oppression and of slavery and enslavement for 400 years. And obviously, that is on the horizon now. That is more than on the horizon. That is the next stage. Now, it is a fascinating thing to think about why the people, why B'nai Israel need to come down to Egypt. And it would seem like being in Egypt, especially in our own secluded place in Goshen, is essential for us to move from the stage of being simply a family to becoming a nation. Obviously, if we stayed in Eretz Israel, we cannot keep on sending our children to Padan Aram to get wives. The likelihood is that the Shvatim would have married women from Canaan or from the local tribes, and the cultural assimilation would have uh, begun. And slowly... Beit Yaakov would have become assimilated into different tribes. It probably would have been very, very difficult for the small family of Israel or Yaakov to gain their own status without exceptional land holdings and without their own place in their land. How would they have formed their own tribe? How would they have kept their own identity? It is more likely that various of the children would have married different women from Kanani, Prizi, Yavusi, and eventually drawn and been been attracted to or at least had some sort of cultural exchange with those other peoples how would Amisrael have retained their uniqueness 
But now, Am Yisrael moved down to Egypt. It is interesting that they are really strangers in this land. They're put in Goshen because they're sheep farmers. And as sheep farmers, they are a toiva. We read in the chapter, uh, in this chapter here, that when Yosef uh, presents his brothers, he gives them very, very strict uh, descriptions about what to say. And he tells them they should say that they are on Shemikneh, they're sheep farmers. Why? Because anybody who is a sheep farmer is an abomination to the Egyptians. And therefore, you'll be kept away from the Mavid population and you will go to Goshen. There is some um, impression that these people are Toeva. They're somebody you don't want to mix with. Earlier on in, in, in Sefer Breshit, we saw about the question of bread, that the Egyptians do not eat bread with the Ivrim. It says in Perak Membet here, um, The Egyptians would not eat bread with the Ivrim, ki two The bread of the of the of Bnei Yaakov is a toiva, is an abomination, and their sheep. For this reason, Bnei Yaakov actually managed to live in a separate location. Once they have a separate location, and once they are supported by Yosef, Lechem, once again, Lechem, then they can, but we know that when we open Sefer Shemot, all of this becomes the problem. In the beginning of Shemot, this, by the way, is a play on the last Pasuk in Parshat Vayigash, because here we had Paru, and now Paru Israel's exponential growth is a counterbalance or is exactly the opposite of what is happening to Egypt. Egypt here are being um, stripped of all of their possessions, their wealth, their kesef, their mikneh, all of their livestock. And then they're being moved from place to place. That's what's happening to Egypt in chapter 47. But look at Ben Israel. Ben Israel are being given land. They're now, instead of a ger, they are now a toshav. They're being given bread for free. And they have their livestock. They have their mikne. They have their, their tzon. And therefore, what we can see happening in this chapter is not only just a sense of, uh, before we explain that it was something about Yosef and his compassion within the area of economics. Now I'd like to claim something different. It's not about famine economics. It's not about national management. It's not about compassion. It's actually back to the story of Bnei Israel. We're actually explaining the seeds of how Bnei Israel became such a pariah in Egypt, such a threat, that while everybody else was becoming destitute, while everybody else was being stripped of all their possessions, that was happening to the entire nation of Egypt. The Israelites, who at this time an exceptionally small group of only 70 people, were given favorable conditions by the leader, Yosef. And now maybe we understand the introduction to Shemot 
He didn't know those circumstances. All he saw was a favored population who were, had different conditions to the Egyptians, the Egyptians who were landless, and suddenly the Israelites, the Bnei Israel, who have land. And suddenly, Bnei Israel start becoming, in addition to their Toeva status, a, a threat. Maybe they will be a fifth column. And that's when these, this chapter begins to explain the seeds of how Am Yisrael became so disfavorable in the eyes of the Egyptians. And here there's obviously a certain irony because in every situation we wonder uh, whether a situation is one of survival whether it is one of, of blessing. The Yosef's talent and his management ability um, is used in order to help the family survive. And yet, somewhat ironically, Dafka, these favorable situations, precisely these um, positive conditions that he manages to provide for his family, become the source of the hatred and their the alienation from Egyptian society that takes place later on, sometimes a blessing in a certain generation actually becomes a curse in a different generation. What we've done in today's shear is to try and provide two ways of understanding the story of uh, the description of Yosef's management of the economics of Egypt. In the first one, we saw it as a very positive one. We saw Yosef using his skill and mastery in order to help Egypt survive and yet, in very harsh and adverse circumstances, he was able to retain people's dignity and to in, in, in engage the entire nation in industry in a time in which the entire Egyptian economy and the social fabric of Egypt could have collapsed. However, in our second approach, we said that this is not a story about Egypt. It's not a universal story. It's not a story about famine economics. Rather, it is a story about the Jewish people. And it shows how the Jewish people are engaging in exactly the opposite direction to what is happening to Egypt. Egypt is, as a society is falling. Egypt as a society is being is losing its everything it has, its money, its livestock, its its land, and the Bnei Israel are gaining all of that. They're gaining a favored situation, a pampered situation under Yosef's uh, control. They are being given such a favorable situation that in the test of time they become despised and seen as a threat to Egypt and this is what leads to their slavery the story that we've been anticipating since the Britman Habitarim but this explains the critical link of how we move from being visitors to Egypt to being a despised group within the fabric of Egyptian society thank you very much wishing everybody Chanukah Sameach and Shabbat Shalom